Greetings everybody, it's a great blessing for me to come to you today. Today I'm going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer and the passage especially where it mentions that we need to forgive um, other people and that uh, God should forgive us as we forgive other people, making the forgiveness of others a prerequisite for forgiveness. Now before we get into that, let us just pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the opportunity that I have to minister to people today. Thank you that your spirit speaks powerfully through me and just touch the lives of people all over the world. <clears throat> May this message go far and wide and touch people that they can see what your kingdom is all about and what you've come to do in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how you've come to give us life. Thank you, Father, for always clearing matters up for us, uh, helping us to understand your scriptures and what you've come to do. And thank you for giving life to us and just bringing peace to our lives. Amen and amen. <clears throat> now, uh, today I'm going to basically talk about the kingdom of God that has come to this, uh, to this world. And I'm going to read maybe eight or ten passages from the Bible, scriptures from the Bible, explaining that uh, a little bit. And I'm going to build that on the foundation of Paul saying that he went to preach the gospel. So what we're going to do is I'm going to look at and I'm going to define what the gospel is and how it started. The gospel didn't just start at the resurrection. The gospel was something that already existed before the world began. There was good news. And we find that this, the good news, that this good news was coming to earth, was being preached by Jesus. And then the good news of the accomplishment of what God has dreamt uh, was taken, has taken place in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul preached that resurrection as the gospel. Uh, as the good news to all people. So we're going to take Romans 1 verse 16 and 17 and use that as a foundation and just explain a little bit what the kingdom of God is and the gospel gospel is. We're going to look at passages in the um, gospels, especially the gospels referring to the coming of the kingdom of God. And then I'm going to go to uh, Luke, or Matthew 6. We're going to first go to Matthew 6 and Luke's the same prayer. And look at the Lord's Prayer in the light of the kingdom of God that has come to the earth. And what God had in mind, uh, what Jesus had in mind when he said, pray this prayer. What was in his mind and what was in the minds of the writers when they wrote that? And, um, and I think that is going to help us a lot to see this from a kingdom perspective. I've never preached, well, nice, I've never preached this message like this. I've just preached it in our local uh, church service that we have via Zoom. And now I'm going to preach, I'm preaching it uh, on, on YouTube. And I trust that you guys are going to be blessed. I've never, I've never preached it this way. I haven't read up on it somewhere in this context. But I think I've got a strong enough case to build to show to you that the Lord's Prayer was basically a prayer wherein we welcome the kingdom of God, wherein it is all about saying, I make myself available for the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ and to live by the body of Jesus and not to live by the law. <clears throat> now, uh, we'll get into all of that. But as, an, as a start, I just want to uh, explain to you how this whole kingdom thing works. Now, imagine that there is a good king and he's got a plan and a dream for his people. He's not like the typical kings we find today where the people are the servants of the king, but he's a good king where he basically wants to make who he is available for his people. He's a servant of the people. He loves the people. It's not like today's politicians and uh, today's governments, which is all about power and wealth and might and rulership and <clears throat> the one breaking down the other one, where there's only promises of serving the people. Uh, he does not live in what we would have today, a taxation wherein people are taxed and then that money is squandered and all those kind of things. You know, I've, uh, I've said it in the previous service as well. It is amazing to think that government is supposed to serve the people and that taxation should not be seen as a tax, but simply as uh, a paying for service. You know, you pay for certain services. You want roads, you want, you want uh, infrastructure and everything. And all of that is there to serve you so that you can run businesses and have jobs and live uh, peacefully in this world. Armies and all those kind of things. It's not supposed to fight you. It's supposed to protect you and all those things. So when we, when we look at our government systems today and, and all of that, we find that it is a typical broken world system that's running and there's not really life in that. But now imagine a government with a king who is good, who loves people, who wants to see them, uh, uh, things go well with them, who gives his life for the people. And he starts this kingdom and it starts basically small and he's got his piece of land where he's starting this and he's got a few people there. And he's starting his, his plan and he's, he's good to the people. He provides an infrastructure where they can have life, not just life, eternal life, man. He provides a structure where they are provided for and all those kind of things. And in a trust relationship, who he is and what he wants to bring comes to these people. But then there is a bad king that wants to advance his kingdom and he comes to the people of the good king and he convinces them that the good king is not that good. And that the good king has got hidden motives and just is ecocentric, eccentric and narcissistic and so forth. But that they should follow him. Well, basically just what this king does is he introduces a system wherein he says, follow yourself. But in trying to, but in following yourself, you're actually following him because he's got the follow yourself kingdom. Uh, and as they start to do that, you know, destruction comes to their lives. Sickness starts to break out. Their kids start to hate one another. Bitterness breaks out. One starts to kill the other one. Uh, it, it brings such a destruction that a, a, a global flood kind of breaks out and people die. And uh, then the, the uh, one person there, you know, um, 
after after the flood gets drunk, his daughters sleep with him. You know, those kind of things start to take place. It's just an absolute mess. And this world is then, or this, this good king's kingdom uh, is contaminated. It's as if bad seed is sown in his fields and he cannot have the crop that he's supposed to have. And then this king, uh, the good king decides, well, and he gathers his armies and he says, well, we are now going to bring peace to this place. Now imagine you are born in a place where all of this turmoil is. I don't think it's very difficult to imagine because that's what we live in in this world. We live in a place of destruction. We live in a place where things are not always going so well. Now, should you be in a place of slavery, bitterness, hatred, sickness, disease, uh, leaders that abuses people, that lie and cheat and all those kind of things, and you could hear of a good king. Imagine now you're hearing the good king who had a good plan. He's gathered his armies and now he's coming to his land and he's going to sort out these people that is destroying their land. I mean, wouldn't that be, it would be good news if you hear that this good king sends a message that he will come. Then when you see, that would be good news. Then when you see that his armies has landed, that would be very good news. And the best news would be when you see that the armies of the king has slain the bad king. That would be absolute great news. Although, once you have slain the enemy, the country can still be in turmoil. The good king's structures and systems and everything must still be implemented there, and he must bring forth his rulership now and fix what was broken by the other king. Now, with that mindset, we can go and look at the scriptures in Matthew 4, verse 23, uh, uh, 35, and so forth. And we're going to see, basically, and what we are reading here is that there was a prophetic word of the king coming with his army, or in this, the, the case of God, not coming with an army. He just needs one man. He comes and he sends his army, which is just consists out of one man, Jesus Christ. And we always had the good news that this Messiah will come. But then there was better news. And that is now when he was born. And then he declared that the kingdom of God is now at hand. And this is what we're now going to read. And this is Matthew 4.23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing all manner of sickness and manner of disease amongst the people. So what he's saying is... The, I've got good news for you. The kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, I am here. I am the, I'm just using now the analogy here. I am the, uh, I'm the one that's come to conquer and look at my power. I can conquer whatever bad there is. And he comes and you start to see the power of this king. He starts to heal sick, sick people. So, and he declares that the true king, the good king, he is now here and he's busy bringing in his kingdom his rulership and jesus went about all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease amongst the people this is now in matthew eleven five. john the baptist asked if jesus is the one that is to come he says the blind receive their sight the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised up and the poor hear the gospel preached to them and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world 
for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. So what is happening here? You know, he's basically saying that uh, there is good news, there's a new kingdom at hand, the armies of heaven has arrived in the man Jesus, and he has got power over sin and death and whatsoever sin, uh, sin could bring into this world, which the Jews believed would be sickness and so forth. So when a sick person is healed, it would show the power that, um, that he has in removing people's sins from them, removing their mortality from them, and giving them eternal life. It's signs of that. That is taking place. And then he's preaching repentance. Repentance was not in leaving your sins. Repentance was in what kingdom you believe is at hand. So he was basically saying to them here, listen, a new kingdom is at hand now, which is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the rulership, the way things happen in heaven has now started to come to earth. And that is now about to take over this earth. And it's going to, there's going to be a battle and the battle is going to be to conquer death itself. Now that wasn't said in direct words, but we now uh, after we've seen what has taken place, know that that is what Jesus has in mind when he says that. Uh, we find um, that repentance, like I say here, is the gospel that a new kingdom is now at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't follow the old one. Follow the, the concept of a new gospel. That would be like, uh, I watched a video, the, I think yesterday, yesterday or the day before, of where they have still voice recordings of some of the slaves in, uh, in, a, in the southern parts of America and what they say how it was when slavery was ended and it was amazing that some of the people after slavery was ended the people didn't tell the slaves that they were free and they just continued to live the lives they lived as slaves but then after two months or so the farmers would come and gov government officials or whatever would come and they would say listen slavery is now over and what they basically would have preached is, repent, for there is now a new kingdom at hand. That is what it would be. Repentance wouldn't be uh, in so much as don't desire or don't lust or any of those things. Repentance would be on what you believe, who the ruler is, and who he is in power. That is what repentance would be. And then to conduct your life according to that truth. So um, the moment you hear you are a free person and you are not a slave, now you have to start to ask yourself the questions, what does freedom mean? How does freedom look? Uh, what, what stand me to do? And I've listened to that uh, voice recordings of some of those slaves. They said that they didn't even know what to do. And I find that is true in the church. When we come and we say you're not under the law, it is not about uh, your good works. It is not about... Do you go to heaven one day or not? It's about resurrection, uh, bodily immortality, and all those kind of things, and repent and believe the true gospel. When this is heard, we find that as the slaves, uh, not just in America, but everywhere, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there was a nation that wasn't enslaved to another nation on the planet. It has happened everywhere. Um, but as this took place, we find that the slaves didn't know what to do. I, I don't even know what to think. Those slaves in those voice recordings said they didn't know what to do. They said, you are free, you can go if you want. 
They didn't even know where to go. They just went back to the house. Some of them just continued to work because they want to eat and, and whatever. And then later on, the, the people started to realize, well, I can start my own business and those kind of things. And people got, got more free. The very same way in Christianity. When we come and we say to people, the kingdom of God is at hand, we don't know what to think about that. We just continue in our old way. We say, well, that's good news, but we don't know what to do. We don't know how to think. We don't know what to say. We have to go and study this out. It's almost like the, um, the Gospel of Mark. It was written and it just stops abruptly. Now, it could be that part of the Gospel of Mark was lost, you know, because those scrolls, the beginning and the end of them was handled a lot and that normally got lost first. Uh, so it could be that the end of Mark was lost, uh, that we don't see how Mark really ended the letter. But let's say it ended the way Mark ended it. What Mark did was it gave the whole account of Jesus and then ended with the resurrection. It's almost like he gives you the letter and say, this man was raised from the dead. And then you sit with stopping in verse 9. Well, what does this mean? How does this relate to me? There was a man raised from the dead bodily. He ascended on high. He, he, he appeared to some of his disciples. He's truly risen from the dead. He's, he's, he's raised. What does that mean? And then as you start to think on what that means, you can come to conclusions on how it includes you and what this new kingdom is all about. And repentance is then defined in what you believe. The, repentance is defined in what it means and what it concludes about your life, a bodily resurrection. I've had to repent of many things myself. I've, I've, you know, when I come to the conclusion, and this is one of the big things for me, as I, um, as I was studying and, and just speaking to God about the resurrection and what it means, I had to ask this question, if God's solution to all the problems of the world is a bodily resurrection, what was the problem? Now, the problem will be defined in, in what medicine we get. If I give you chemotherapy, if you go to the doctor and they say you need chemotherapy, I mean, what is the problem? The problem is cancer. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can give chemotherapy, I think, to other things as well, other problems, but most of the time it's cancer. So uh, if, if, if the bodily resurrection is the solution, what is the problem? Oh, well, mortality. <laughs> now, I mean, that is repentance. That is now changing your mind, having a new view about things. We always thought that the problem was something else, you know, disobedience or something like that, or not keeping to the law. Meantime, the problem is mortality, and God came to solve mortality. Well, I've said all of that, to just, and, and we can take this together and say that the kingdom of God has now come, come to the earth, and in this kingdom... We need to repent, and the whole idea that Jesus came to the earth in Jesus' mind was that he is part of this kingdom, and the breaking or inauguration of this kingdom and its rule is to take place in him. He's going to conquer death and everything that leads unto death, and then he will ascend on high, and he will then be made the Lord uh, and uh, that is where we find our Christology. He will be made the Christ of the world, and he will then rule in, their, in the bodies of people by his spirit or by his life and bring forth uh, his life to man. And so he will live and rule in this world. Something else that I have to say as an um, introduction here 
is, or a very important point, is that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we always say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was prior to the fulfillment of the law. It was still Old Testament. I've preached it that way um, many times, but I think that I've been wrong in what I said there. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is written from a New Testament perspective because those letters were written long after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I reckon that John was written between 90 and 100 AD, That's even after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, most of them were written between 50 AD, that's about 20 years after the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and uh, about 100. Now that's where they were written, and a lot of the, most of the New Testament text. Uh, I think Galatians is the oldest, older than the, than the other books. Uh, so we find that, you know, we, we think it was written in this chronological order. You know, first Matthew was written, then Mark was written, then Luke was written, then John, and then Romans. And that's not how the time span work. So we find people already believing the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, and then taking the events and the history of what Jesus said and what he did and write it in a book which we call the gospel. The good news. And it was written unto people that they could believe in the good news. That is what it was all about. It was talking about the kingdom of God that came to earth and how everything was conquered. I can conclude that there were things that Jesus said prior to his crucifixion that was in line with old legalistic law systems and terms and what people were addressed in that way. But we will find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they will take their parables and put it together in ways wherein they have a message that they try to bring of the inauguration of the kingdom of God into this world, preaching the gospel. Okay, and that I say so that we can take the, and, and, and explain that the Lord's Prayer, this is what this whole message is about, that the Lord's Prayer is all about accepting the kingdom of God. It is, and when it was written by Matthew, when it was written by Luke, those people understood it in a way wherein they, I believe, understood every New Testament concept in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus, when he prayed, having in his mind that he has he's come to bring in the kingdom of God has come to be that, that army on the ground. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way things are going to go, go, goes in heaven has now come to earth and it is starting to infiltrate this world. He's got that in mind and then he pray. He teaches people how to pray. Okay, when we go and look, and you can just jot this down, this is, we can go to Acts 4 verse 2, uh, as well as Acts 17, 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 12. The gospel of the kingdom is also preached as the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the influence that has on people. Now we're getting, with all of that said, into Matthew 6 verse 9. I, I hope you understand and, and just um, bear with me in laying such a foundation. We have struggled so much with the Lord's Prayer, especially the, the part where it says, forgive, uh, for if, um, if you've, Lead us um, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
I mean, that is a big thing for us. We don't know how to bring that into the New Testament. We take the Old Test, we take the, the Lord's Prayer and say that's an Old Testament prayer, which I have said before, uh, but I think I just didn't understand. Um, and I think the, the message that I tried to bring across was, yes, it was Old Testament, it was prior to the cross, so you, you had to do an action in order to be forgiven by God and so forth. But I want to say to you, even in the New Testament, in the true context of this, if you cannot forgive men their sin, according to what Jesus had in mind here, you, the, it will also be impossible for the Father to deliver you. Uh, now, that has got nothing to do with Auntie Sarah that was rude to you and now you don't want to forgive her. It's got much more to do with accepting the end of Judaism and the new kingdom than what it's got to do with forgiving people uh, as we uh, think. Okay, let us read Matthew 6 from verse 9. After this manner pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you give not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, that is as plain as day. Um, we, I, I want to... Yeah, let, let, me, let me get to the punchline, and then I'll go through this verse by verse. If we go and look at the same prayer in Luke 11, this is how it reads. And it says, And he said unto them, When you pray, say... Now, very interesting here, just before I get into that. Uh, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, this is Jesus now, when he sees one of the disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So that means that these disciples of Jesus was with Jesus for a very long time, and Jesus didn't teach them how to pray. But here he teaches them how to pray, how to speak to God, uh, uh, what is the framework, where you speak to God, what to expect from God, and so forth. And then he comes and he, he gives the, the, the Lord's Prayer here. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in, in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone, that is indebted to us. I like the, the, the Matthew version a little bit more there. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then, if you read from verse 11, in the very same, this is now, I've just read to you verse 1 to 4. Now we're jumping to 11. Listen to what he says. And a son, uh, um, if a son asks bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? Or if you ask an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Okay, so what is Jesus saying? Jesus teaches them how to pray, how to pray. And then what he is saying is, this prayer means you asking for the Holy Spirit. Because he says, who of you? When your child asks you something, will give him something opposite to what he asks. And this is in the context of the Lord's Prayer. 
And then he goes to verse 13 and he says there, so if you ask your heavenly father good things, how much more will he not give you the Holy Spirit? So to me, the Lord's Prayer is the asking of where you ask God for the Holy Spirit. It is basically a sinner's prayer in this sense, wherein you are acknowledging the kingdom of God, opening yourself up to his rulership, wherein you are saying, I refuse to live by the law, I refuse to live by Jew-Gentile ethnicity logic anymore, I now live by the power of God, and I want that life, and you are asking for that. So here we see that the Spirit is given, according to Jesus, as a result of the Lord's Prayer. We can also go to Luke, uh, sorry, Acts 19. And we're going to look at, at this as for an example of somebody who asked for the Spirit. And this is now in um, Acts 19.1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples and he said unto them have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed so what, what happens when you believe what happens you receive the Holy Spirit and they said unto him we have not as much as heard whether there be a Holy Spirit then Paul's mind immediately jumped to now what is your doctrine he says in verse 3 and he said unto them unto what then were you baptized and they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized, and baptized you with a baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when I heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when did the disciples of Apollos and, and those people receive the Holy Spirit is after they believed in the true gospel. And then they basically were then baptized, meaning we accept this gospel. And when they accept that gospel, what happened? They received the Holy Spirit. Now let's link that to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is taught, and then the Father said, if you pray this, you shall receive the Holy Spirit. So what can we liken it unto? I believe we can run it parallel to receiving Jesus and receiving the kingdom of God. I believe that is what Jesus had in mind when he prayed this. Now, let us go and look at the prayer itself. It says here, And this man I pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, now, first of all, when Jesus said this, to whom did he say this? He said this to Jews. He said it to his Jewish people. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. As what he would say to the multitude that were worrying about food and money and all those kind of things. He said to them, don't you know your heavenly Father will feed you? Talking about God as their Father. He says, hallowed be thy name. What is the name of God? The name of God in the Old Testament and what these Jews would have understood is the self-existing one the one who exists solely by himself whoever was and ever will be the only the, now if you call god the self-existing one 
you can call no one else that name. Meaning that eternal life belongs to him, and he is the only one, the sole possessor of it. And hallowed be that name, the name that God is the one that has eternal life. That means you come to a place where you basically acknowledge, and this is what I would say in this prayer, in order for you to pray, to say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is made holy, not unholy. Unholy would mean, or the word holiness means set apart. So when you say, hallowed be your name, it means you, the self-existing one, that is different than us. We are mortals. You are the immortal. And I find this that, um, and I don't have time to go into that, but that is very difficult for the church to pray. 95% of the church cannot say with true understanding, hallowed be your name. Because in some form or fashion, they believe that they are inherent immortal beings themselves, be it their souls or their spirits or whatever. They don't say, hallowed be your name. And I think the problem that we have in the church today is we, we cannot come. We're still struggling with, this, with the poison of the snake, the serpent that came to Adam and Eve, wherein when Adam and Eve said to them, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, you don't have, or you have eternal life inside yourself to some form or fashion, um, they believed it. And still, until today, humans cannot believe that they can really die in every area of them. They, a lie is taught in the church, which is that you're an eternal being. It is just a matter of where you're going to live. You're either going to live in heaven or you're going to live in hell. That is an outright lie. And I challenge anybody to come and through exegesis bring truth to that to the table it cannot be done it is just a lie okay now it says here um, it says our father which art in heaven hallowed be your name now listen to this your kingdom you are the eternal one that reigns with eternal life your kingdom come so what are you saying you are saying here am i i don't have eternal life but your rule of life let it come I want it over me. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, what does it mean? What was in Jesus' mind when, the, when he said these words? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You need to ask yourself what Jesus' definition was on the will of God. Jesus' definition on the will of God is recorded in John 6 verse 38. He says it this way, For I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now he's defining what the will of God is. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which has given me I should lose nothing, but that I should raise it up again in the last day. So what is the will of God? That Jesus would raise people bodily up in the last day. That is the will of God. And this is the will of him that sent me. I want you to say these words with me. And this is the will of him that sent me. This was words which John recorded that came out of the mouth of the Son of God, Jesus himself. This John wrote after he understood the resurrection and everything and understood the gospel in its full context. He wrote these words. And he, he wanted people to believe this. 
And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now back to the prayer. Your kingdom come, in other words, the rule of eternal life come, your will be done, bodily resurrection in the last day, and eternal life as a possession for whosoever believes in the Son. Your will be done in the earth as in heaven. In other words, let this eternal life reign and rule, which God the Father possesses, the one who has no beginning, no end, and we are coming to the acknowledgement that we don't have that. We've hallowed his name. He is set apart from us. We are mortals, yet we now pray, and this is our request. I hope you can start to see where this is going and why you have to receive the Holy Spirit if you pray this prayer in its true context. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what was the will of God that is in heaven? The will of God is that the word of God, the word of eternal life, comes to the earth and that this word, which became flesh and dwelt among us, that was raised from the dead, that is ascended on high, that this man, Jesus, that he can keep those who believe upon him and then raise them up in the last day. That is... If you want to preach with, un uh, if you want to pray with understanding, you cannot come and say, well, you know, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. You know, on earth, you will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And then from there, you say, well, thank God that my aim is to die and one day go to heaven. You have not understood the Lord's Prayer, neither have you prayed the Lord's Prayer with any form of understanding. Understanding this would, say, would mean, God, I come and I acknowledge that you had a plan for earth, you had a plan with the people on the earth, and your plan was to conquer our mortality, and your kingdom is now here. I declare I'm a mortal being, and I declare your plan is to raise me up in the last day, and I welcome that for me. I fall in with your plan. I accept that. Let that be mine. Where we don't live with a, we are Baptist. I mean, today, you know, when we listen to certain Gospels, you can ask, to whose baptism were you baptized? Some would say, I've been baptized unto the baptism of Socrates. Others would say, I'm baptized in the baptism of Plutarch or Pluto. You know, uh, 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 we, we've been baptized to all, to all these different things, but we've not been baptized unto the baptism of Christ, where he was baptized into death himself and then bodily raised from the dead and where we are disciples of that Gospel. Okay, let's continue. <clears throat> Verse, Thy um, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, what would a Jew understand if you say to him to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Where would his mind go? His mind would go directly to uh, what Jesus said in John chapter 6, which refers to the, the bread or the manna that fell from heaven. When a Jew, when you tell him, feed us, Give us this day our daily bread. In the context of the Old Testament, what does he have to think about? He has to think about the manna that fell from heaven, which is, according to Jesus, that that bread which fell from heaven was not the true bread that came from the Father. But Jesus declared in John chapter 6 that his body is the bread that falls from heaven. 
So give us this day our daily bread. What would that mean? That would mean, Father, you, the bread that falls, falls from heaven, which you say is a true bread, which is the body of Jesus that was broken for us so that we can eat this and never die, which is belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what you pray. Give us this day our daily bread, meaning, yes, Lord, you have come with this bread and we say, give it. We want it. We want the bodily resurrection. We want to be fed from the, the, the fact that Jesus came from, from heaven to earth, that he died, rose again, and that he is the only begotten from the dead, which now is given from heaven to us as what we eat every day. So the Lord's Prayer would be, we agree that we daily believe upon the resurrected Jesus and we are fed from the concept that he... He, the Word, became flesh as a mortal human, conquered death, was raised from the dead. And now, according to Ephesians 1 verse 19 to the end of the chapter, this resurrected Christ has now been given unto the church and we eat and we are fed with the bread, the true bread that comes from heaven. We are saying this daily. We are, it is not a matter of we believe in it. We daily believe upon this good news. Oh my goodness, I see I've already run out of my time. Um, let us continue. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What would a Jew, because remember this was given to the Jews. It doesn't help we read, we take it in the, and make an eisegesis out of this. Meaning we're reading things into the text that's not there. Taking this just like this and giving it to Gentiles. No, this was said to Jews and contextually we have to conclude and or we have to ask the right question. The question would be what would a Jew think if you tell him forgive, forgive us our sin as we forgive our debtors. What would they see in that? Who was their debtors? The Gentiles, the Romans. They felt that the Gentiles owed them obedience, owed them homage, because they believed they had the truth, they had the life. But now they, and they thought that they were a light unto the Gentiles, and these Gentiles, they owe them obedience and all those kind of things. But when you come to a place as a Jew, when you say that, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the, is, the, the, what happens there is you are saying the Jew and the Gentile are both sinners. And if you read Romans, especially chapter 2, you will find that Paul comes and he says the very same thing. And he says that both Jew and both Gentile are sinners. And we are now saying that we saw them on a Jewish platform as sinners and we are righteous. But now we say we don't see them as sinners anymore from a Jewish platform. We see our all, both of us as sinners. I'm a sinner now. Would you deliver me, Father? I accept, I, I accept as a Jew that I'm as much a sinner and I need salvation because I've come to the place where I see it is not Jew or Gentile anymore. It's all about your kingdom that has come to the earth. Remember, if you have prayed that prayer,
prayer, the result of that prayer would be, if you pray with understanding, that you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And what do you need to do in order to have the Holy Spirit? You go and, go and read uh, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. You must believe that he died and that he was raised by the Father from the dead. And as you believe upon this, what will happen? We shall be saved or we shall receive the Holy Spirit. So when you look at the Lord's Prayer here, you have to look at it as a belief in the work of Jesus Christ and how that pertains to Jew, Gentile and so forth. And he goes so far here is that he says that if you, for, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. What he's saying is that if you come to a place where you can say that the Gentile is delivered from being a sinner because of the law system, you will find through that same logic wherein you set him free on account of what Jesus Christ has done, you shall be set free. And it is impossible. And I agree 100%. It is 100% impossible for you to receive deliverance and freedom and the Holy Spirit or a system where life comes from the Spirit of God and not your own flesh should you continue in old uh, Jewish way of thinking. That is it. It, it makes absolute 100% sense. When he says here, deliver us, uh, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The way I see that is, is that, Father, you know, I thank you. And this is openness wherein we are saying we are open for you to lead us into a place where we are not tempted. When are people tempted? When was Adam and Eve tempted? Adam and Eve was tempted when they were uh, led into a place where the focus was themselves and their own ability so what this does is we are saying father thank you that you lead me away from finding my identity in my own works wherein i will not be tempted with evil evil defined in romans chapter 7 wherein paul says that whenever i want to do good i find evil is with me and the temptation was to find life by ethnicity and i think that is why these two two verses go next to one another he says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and please help us not to go back to our old system where we will be tempted to go back to the law system and be tempted to go go to to have evil it's basically saying i'm finished with this and thank you god that you helped me that i never go back to it and then he says it this way let me go to chapter 11 i've just got the wrong wrong verse here uh, here it is um i don't know why i have not got it here that it says, because to you belong the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here it is in verse 13. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says, thank you that you are the leader. You the one by whom our lives are formed. And thank you that under your rulership. I'm thanking you that you lead me and help me keep me away from ever going back to that system. For I declare all authority and all power belongs to the eternal, immortal God that has come to bring 
eternal life and immortality to man, which I am open for. And as you pray that, you're actually saying the following words, Father, thank you that you give me the Holy Spirit, that I, from the Spirit, can have life, that I can be bodily reborn from the Spirit in the last day, and that my life can now be born from your life and not from my own power. That's the Lord's Prayer. I trust that this message has encouraged you and blessed you and that it just brings peace to your heart. Let us pray together. Father, we just want to come and we just want to pray and say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you, Lord, that we can also say, as the scripture says in Luke, so clearly, it says that for if we then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more will you, Father, not give us the Holy Spirit as we request it from you? And thank you that we have requested it and we have received the Holy Spirit. And thank you for your life that's directed towards us. Thank you that your kingdom is in this world. And as we look to the world, as we look to the craziness of the news media and the craziness of what people are doing, we are saying, thank God that we, thank you, Lord, that our life is not from that system because it surely will perish and be no more. But our life is from you, who is eternal, and we have hallowed your name. And now from you, we receive life. Amen and amen. Thank you that you've watched this message and I will speak to you again in this week and then also next Sunday. God bless.